Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. gone to England and had a hit there and come back here and still nothing, all of a sudden, breakdown happens, you know? It's alright if you love me. It's alright if you don't. One friend in particular I, I want to dedicate this next song to is a guy named John Scott. You don't know him, but... In those days, we were just so happy to be playing and to have gigs and uh, to even have a record out. And to hear it on the radio is just more than we ever dreamt of, you know. Hello and welcome to The Rock Podcast. I'm Denny Somak, along with my co-host, Anita Gavinson. Hi, Anita. Hey, Danny. I'm really psyched, as the kids say, to talk about Tom <laughs> Petty today uh, with our friend John Scott. Yeah, John Scott, a very good friend of ours, uh, an executive from the music industry, has a book out, Tom Petty and Me, and it traces the, the career of Tom Petty. Um, John joined uh, Tom's record label right when they were getting ready to drop him because of no sales. And uh, it's just a fantastic story about how he, he was working at ABC Records. Nobody else cared about the record. He accidentally picked it up and played it, fell in love with it, and was determined to break it and almost lost his job and a whole bunch of other great stories. So uh, first of all, we're going to start with uh, this piece. This is Tom himself talking about the early days. It was very weird because uh, the record was out and we'd gone to England and had a hit there and come back here and still nothing and locally we were playing the whiskey and we started selling out the place like people started coming and uh, we had this little group of fans that would just show up and uh, all of a sudden breakdown happens you know now we're going in to do our second album and the first one starts to happen a year later so uh it was a change of plan, slight change of plan here, and, and we went back out on the road. Now, John uh, worked with Tom for the next 40 years. At uh, Tom's last concert at the Hollywood Bowl, he stopped the show and dedicated I Won't Back Down to John as a thank you for his dedication and passion for the band. One week later, Tom died of cardiac arrest. This is from the Hollywood Bowl. One friend in particular I, I want to dedicate this next song to is a guy named John Scott. You don't know him, but six weeks before our first record was dropped by ABC Records, he went to the radio stations with a vengeance and brought that sucker onto the charts. And we... And it wasn't easy. <laughs> we 
grateful. We're going to dedicate this to him tonight. This is I Won't Back Down. It all fits together, and what a great story. Yeah, it sure is. And in part one of our conversation, John's going to talk about those early days when he started out, as all good people do, as a disc jockey. He was a DJ. And, you know, that's a great job. That <laughs> Yes, it is. I'm just, all the best people have had a little bit of time behind the mic, okay? And uh, also, he... You know, he then slummed it and he went into the record business. I get it. You know, yeah, you, can't, right. <laughs> you can't work for a virtuous cause your whole life. But uh, all kidding aside, uh, he was just a trailblazer in the record business. And he was and good. He listened he to He was stuff. so good. So inventive, right? Yeah. So inventive. And before he met Tom, his first passion and first guy was uh, John Mellencamp. And it almost came back to item, as we say. <laughs> yeah. And you, you'll hear all these uh, these stories. So let's just start. This is part one of our conversation with John Scott. Hey, Denny. Hey, Anita. How are you guys Hi, doing? Hi, John. So um, Anita and I both know you for many years. And we remember when you first started talking about uh, uh, possibly doing this book on Tom. Um, but And we know the story. It's been very well received. And it really is. It's not like the other books on Tom Petty. It's from someone who actually knew him. And actually worked with him and actually helped establish him to be the superstar that he is today. So before we get into Tom's story, I'd like to get into your story. If you could just uh, briefly describe your your entry into the business uh, and eventually the record business and your connection with Tom. Well, I entered the business when I was 10 years old. I was listening to um, Dewey Phillips play the first Elvis Presley record when I was a kid. With a pillow, uh, with a transistor under my ear. Then I knew I wanted to be a DJ. Dropped out of college because I wanted to go to this great radio school we had in Memphis, Tennessee. My father had different ideas. He borrowed money for me to go to Memphis State to major in. I, I quit after two years because I just I wanted to be a DJ, and I got a job in Lawrenceburg, Tennessee, um, home of WDXE. I worked there for about a year. It's a very small town, um, 5,000 people, and I just had enough. So I moved back to Memphis, and within a week of being there in the newspaper, there was a story about a station called FM 100. They're going to be hiring. And I was down there the next morning at 9 o'clock waiting for the program director to come in. He came in, and I told him I want this job. He sat down with me. I told him about I love rock and roll. Uh, they wanted to rock the station. Anyway, he listened to me. He said, you're hired. So I got the job, and we had a 400,000-watt FM station. And I think we were the first FM station uh, in the South to start playing anything we wanted to play. And, John, you did what shift on the station? I started off 3 to 7. Did you think at that point that you were just going to be a DJ, not just, but that you were going to remain a DJ? Did you ever think at that point, I'm going to make a transition into the record business? I think when I was 18 years old, I heard under assistant West Coast promo man on the radio by the Rolling Stones. Right. And I said, well, that sounds like a pretty interesting job. Maybe I'll do that someday. What made you move to LA? Well, first of all, uh, uh, MCA came in and they knew that I had, I, they felt I had pretty good ears for hearing a hit record or playing a good song. And they hired me to be 
a local promotion for Memphis for MCA Records. Okay. And so I started off in Memphis. I was there for about three or four months, and there's an opening in Atlanta. Would, would you explain what a promo man is? Okay. <clears throat> well, John Cougar did the forward to my book, and he says it pretty well. But, but a promotion man basically is the guy who tries to get records played on the radio, as well as go out with artists on tour, make sure that the right DJs are at the concert, throw a little party beforehand give out the tickets to the concert, make sure they get there. Biggest part of a, of a promo man's job is to get records played on the radio. And back then it was through relationships. Uh, being a promo man felt like the same as being a DJ. As a DJ, I was turning fans onto music. And as a promo man, I was turning music directors onto music. I, I knew what good music was and what bad music was. Now, did you have your eyes set on Los Angeles at that time? Was that a dream of yours? No, not really. Um, I had been to Los Angeles one time before then and thought it was a really cool place. But no, I didn't really have my eyes on it. <clears throat> and I was in Atlanta when Leonard Skinner uh, hit the, the first album came out. And I became friends with them. They liked me. Uh, an opening in Los Angeles came open, and um, it was for a head of album promotion for MCA Records in Los Angeles. And I, I said, Take, I, I'll be there. And they hired me to do that, so they moved me to Los Angeles. So I, I would say in about within about a year, I was in Los Angeles as head of album promotion at MCA Records on the back lots of Universal Studios. Coming from radio was an important part of being a promo man. And I learned they had expense accounts and that was pretty cool. And they were making more money than I was. So that even made it better. So not only did you move to Los Angeles, but um, you end up meeting what is arguably, who is arguably one of the uh, most controversial and colorful people (laughs) that ever in the music business, uh, Charlie Minor. Well, yes, I did. And uh, actually, the, Charlie worked at ABC Records. And at MCA Records, when I was head of album promotion, I was working with Leonard Skinner, Elton John, The Who, Wishbone Ash, Golden Earring. And I was really doing it. I felt like I was really doing a good job. They liked me. And then a kid by the name of Johnny Cougar came into the office. And the president played about 30 seconds of it and tossed it. And he asked, has anybody heard this record? And I said, yeah, I have. And I was the only one in the room of 20 people that held their arms up. And he said, what song? I said, Chestnut Street Revisited. And about 30 seconds later, he he listens to it, tosses it, and says, who the fuck would play a record by Johnny Cougar? What a stupid name. (laughs) And his manager is an asshole. And we don't like him. So being not a priority. Well, when he mentioned his manager's name, um, when I was in radio, I, we played David Bowie from the get-go. His manager was Tony DeFreeze, and when I heard that, I went, bingo, David Bowie. So the meeting was over, and the head of, album, uh, the head of A&R, who signed Johnny Cougar, said, you really like this kid? And I said, uh, yeah, I, re- I really like some of his songs. He said, do you want to go see him? Because nobody's ever seen him from MCA. I said, sure. Where do I have to go? He said, you got to fly to Seymour, Indiana. 
which of course I had never heard of, but I did it because I just liked the kid. And when we got there, Dave Lanco, uh, who was the local promo man out of Cleveland, and I went to the Seymour Armory, National Guard Armory, which held about 300 people. And he came out and just nailed us to the wall. He, We knew that minute this kid was good. His band was tight. And I remember going back to the hotel and calling the head of A&R and going, hey, this guy is a potential superstar. Don't, don't drop him from the label. And he said, John, I'm, 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 I'm asleep. Let's talk Monday. Are you high? I went, oh, well, a little bit maybe, but that doesn't matter. This kid is a superstar. And we, and John invited us to his house the next day. Uh, I got out of this crappy 1950s shag carpet uh, motel and spent the night at John's house. And of course he said, what do you guys think about my name? And we were like, um, uh, not the greatest, but the, the record is out. And he explained to us why Tony DeFries wanted to call him Johnny Cougar, because he said nobody could pronounce Mellencamp. So he said, it's either Johnny Cougar or Johnny Puma. I decided on Johnny, I decided on Johnny Cougar. Your uh, affiliation uh, originally with MCA Records led you to uh, John Cougar, who later use his real name, John Cougar Mellencamp, and then just shortened it to John Mellencamp. And we all know what happened to that unknown kid. But <laughs> why don't you tell us uh, how you got involved with uh, Tom Petty? But before you do that, finish the story of Charlie Minor. Yeah, I got to talk. Yeah, I got to hear about your first, you know. MCA fired me because I love Johnny Cougar and wouldn't stop promoting him. I rented a live Cougar to go around to radio stations and radio and record. You can rent a cougar? We rented a cougar, but you had to call Universal Casting and go, we'd like to rent a cougar. And they go, what? Uh, get your boss on the phone. The boss gets, we, yeah, we wanted stupid, but to, he's saying to himself, but, uh, and he think we think you're crazy, but we did that. And then I decided to go to Cleveland and had a meeting with John Gorman and Kid Leo. And John listened to it and said, Johnny Cougar, are you serious? Uh, no, he's like a Midwestern Bruce Springsteen. And so the next morning we have breakfast and Kid Leo says, um, hey, I kind of like that record. And John Gorman says, well, I don't, and we're not going to play it. And I just said, well, I'll just stay here until you add the record. And they started laughing, of course. I was there for seven days. And every morning, lunch and dinner, Dave Lanco and I would take breakfast, lunch, and dinner over to the station with a Johnny Cougar album. Finally, I think John Gorman got so disgusted with us, with me. He said, all right, look, we'll add the damn record. Just go home. You know, WMMS in Cleveland was one of the most, you know, well-known, well-respected radio stations. And so I came back to L.A. and they said that the president came in and said, he told me to stop working Johnny Cougar. And I said, how can I? I just got the biggest station in America to add his record. Stop working the record. I can't. Stop working the record. I can't. You're fired. And all of a sudden, I was, I was fired. I was walked out, walked out of the uh, Universal Studios lot by a, by a policeman or security guard. 
and I grabbed all my stuff, took it out, and I had no job. And all of a sudden, I was doing. I felt like, wow, you're doing a pretty good job. All of a sudden, you just don't have a job. And so, about I don't know, thirty days later, Charlie Miner, who was probably one of the most important record promotion guys there is, uh, called me up. And I knew Charlie from the South. He lived in Atlanta at one time, and he would come to the station and promote us some records. And we got to be good friends. And he wanted me to. Um, work as head of album promotion like I did at MCA, but this time at ABC Records. I really respected Charlie because he was, I knew he was a great promotion guy. I was, that was on a Friday and Monday morning. I was, you know, driving up Laurel Canyon Boulevard and going towards the ABC Records. I could see MC in the background, just gave him the finger. And um, I'm on to something new and big here. He invited me over before my wife and I over to his house, um, I think on Saturday night and, and wanted us to have dinner. And we sat down, got there in Bel Air and got sat down and Charlie, uh, didn't come out. I mean, this, and he had a butler who was kept pouring champagne in our glasses. And half an hour later, Charlie opened up a door at the top. I'll never forget. And a purple Hugh Hefner, like, uh, smoking jacket. <laughs> and, a girl walks out next to him in a see-through negligee, <laughs> playboy-looking girlfriend, and we'll be down in 30 minutes to change our clothes. And my wife kind of elbowed me like, what the hell? Who is this guy? <laughs> and I said, he's the kingpin of record promotion. And, <laughs> and we needed the money, so I, I said, you know, I've, I've got to go to work for ABC. And we had dinner, and before I left, he said, John, ABC is going to be a great place for you. Who else? Who were some of the other artists that were on ABC Records at the time? Um, Jimmy Buffett, um, mo- mostly a lot of blues artists like BB King. Um, Steely Dan was also on um, ABC. For when I got there, I believe Stephen Bishop was. Um, yeah, right. Um, Charlie was promoting on and on, mm-hmm. and I went into the office and and sat down. Charlie asked me to sit down on his couch and. He started his, his phone calls and I started watching this guy and going, holy crap. This guy like works five phones at one time and he barks out to his secretary, give me WMAK Nashville on the phone in five minutes. Call KHJ in Los Angeles now. He gets on the phone, blah, 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 blah. Bam, records on the radio. He's having a big party at his house. You got to be there, Bill. But I got this record on and on. You're not playing yet. It's going to be a hit record, Bill. And, you can, you know, I'll send a limo to your house, pick you up on Saturday. It's going to be a big party. And it was a big party. He had a house in Malibu. And uh, that's kind of the way it started. And all of a sudden, he had five ads on a, on a record, like, bam. And I'm going, God, this guy is incredible. He's like, uh, he's, <laughs> I've never seen anything like a guy working a record. When I say working a record, meaning trying to get it played on the radio, like Charlie Minor. So this is 1976? Six, seven? 76. Okay. So then you go to your office. Well, before that, before that in his office, he makes right. me raise my right hand <laughs> and swear I will never do a Johnny Cougar stunt again. He said, right. why would you stick up for the guy anyway? I said, because I think he's a, I think he's a superstar. He said, well, don't do that here. If we were going to drop a band or 
just don't get involved or you'll lose your job. But you didn't listen to that. Well, I promised him. I raised my right hand, but I think I had my left fingers. Yeah, I'm sure you did. I'm sure you did. John appeared at the right time to help get Tom's first album played on the radio, and that uh, changed the careers of both men, actually. Tom's first album had been out for eight months when John arrived on the scene. The rest is history, and John's featured in a recent episode of How It Really Happened, Tom Petty, Mysterious Ending. That's that uh, acclaimed crime series on HLN, and I just saw that the other day, and I saw John on that. Before we play part two, I found a clip of Tom where he talks about his first band, Mud Crutch, and this plays a role in the story that John is telling. The most distinguishing thing about that band was uh, it had the worst name in the history of showbiz. Didn't you play bass in that band? Yeah, and uh, it was a real good band, you know. It was far too far ahead of its time musically and stylistically and what it was doing. There was uh, There was three writers and singers and... I guess it's what they would have called New Wave about three years later. And we were doing uh, what the sort of New Wave stuff, but there was no name for it then. And uh, country stuff and blues and, and anything, you know, rockabilly, a lot of that. Uh, in retrospect, a good band, you know. We were together a long time in Florida, five years, and we became like a, a, a real popular group locally. And then we got a record contract, and we came out here. We put out one single called Depot Street on MCA Shelter. And uh, the group broke up then because we just couldn't. It had been five years, and coming out here and getting a, a deal, a record deal, and going in to make an album just fried us. We never got through it. We broke up. The tension was too much, you know. And here is part two of our interview with John Scott. How did Tom Petty come into your life? Three days into my job at ABC Records, I was going to lunch. I opened my closet door, and an album kind of fell down. And it was a white album, nothing on it. No, it didn't have anything about who the artist was. But it had a piece of vinyl inside. I opened that up, and there was no song titles. It was just a test pressing. And... You know, being a DJ, you kind of consumed with music. So I just stopped lunch and said, let me just sit down and listen to this because I didn't know who it was. And I hear a breakdown and I hear a song I believe to be called American Girl. And chills ran up and down my my you know, hair standing up on your arm, goosebumps going, good God, who are these guys? And I listened twice, once second time on headphones. And that even blew me away even more. And because of Mike Campbell's guitars are just flying back and forth across, across your headphones. And I ran to Charlie Miner's office and said, who, who, who are these guys? I'm holding up a white record. And he put it on the turntable. And for 10 seconds later, he, he said, oh, that's that punk band, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And I looked at him like, you are out of your mind. I said, what do you mean a punk band? This is a rock and roll band. No, John, the record's been out for eight months. Not much has happened. Some stations have played it. It's only sold 12,000 copies. And we spent way too much money on this band, so we're going to drop them from the label. And I go, you can't. He goes, here you go again, Johnny Cougar. 
And I didn't care. I had heard something that I felt was a, a game changer in rock and roll. And I, I said, Let me, just give me six weeks, Charlie, to see if I can get this record play. He said, John, it's eight months old. No. I got down on my knees and I begged him, just give me six weeks. I have nothing else to do, you tell me. Just give me six weeks to try, and if I don't, I'll quit. And finally, he said, yeah, okay, go ahead. You got six weeks, good luck. And I went back to my office, and I started calling stations. And, and you know, FM stations that I had known working at MCA. And majority of them said, we've never heard of the band. Or the other mantra was, isn't that that punk band? And they thought, so why? Why did they think punk? Because it didn't sound punk, but why did they think he was? Because of the cover, the album cover. The album cover, I I, I really never asked Tom why he did this, but he had a black leather jacket on with bullets around his neck, a long stringy blonde hair, and a smirk on his face. And I believe half the stations in America just didn't even listen to the record. But Charlie Miner said, forget Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Worked the Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis single. Mm. Mm. So they pushed Tom Petty aside, except for certain cities like San Francisco, San Jose. Well, let me just tell you one quick backstory. <clears throat> when I was at MCA, I drove to Nashville with Olivia Newton John to promote her new record. And MCA gives everybody a cassette of it's the first of the month of new releases that are coming out. And we're sitting listening to music. And we hear a song called Depot Street. And it's kind of a little reggae song. And Olivia said, hey, that's a pretty good song. I went, yeah, it's really good. Who's the band? She said, oh, this is a stupid name. It's called Mud Crutch. I went, Mud Crutch? Anyway, we liked the record. I went to WKDF in Nashville. And they agreed with me. They put it on the air. I'm excited. I got my first record ad. And I called Los Angeles. And they said, John, forget about Mud Crutch. It's only a single. Uh, Depot Street is not a priority. Forget about them. I forgot about them. Flashback to after calling stations and and a few stations said, oh, yeah, we're playing it and getting a good response. And um, Charlie Kendall, who I think you both know very well. Oh, yeah. Very well-respected program director, music director. <clears throat> went to work at a station in Los Angeles called K-West. And there was no record, no FM station in Los Angeles playing Tom Petty. I took it to his apartment, and he looked at me, he listened to it on headphones, and turned to me and said, good God Almighty, who are these guys? I said, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. He said, are they any good live? And I, I went, I, I don't know, Charlie. I've never, I just picked up this record by accident three days ago. Complete accident. And he said, I said, but I do know they're playing this Saturday night at the Whiskey A Go-Go opening for Blondie. And he said, we're going, right? I went, hell yeah, we're going. I want to see this band. Because all I had done is listen to Tom Petty and Heartbreakers for three or four or five days in the car, at the office, at the home. I couldn't get enough of it. And uh, we we got to the Whiskey about 6.45. Tom was going on at 7. And there was about 10 or 15 people inside the Whiskey. Nobody knew who Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers were. Very few people. And, you know, I was praying, please don't look like a punk band. Don't be a punk band. Just be a rock and roll band. And they walked out and looked. They all had their own 
cool look about him. Tom had a you know scarf around his neck, and Stan Lynch just looked like Ringo Starr kind of. And they were all they were they were all cool looking guys, and they broke into O'Carroll by Chuck Berry. And Charlie and I looked at each other like, "Good God, a mighty!" And then the second song they played was "Breakdown," and that's the one that Charlie felt and I felt was a hit record. And Charlie leaned over and said, "John, I'm gonna start playing this record on our station once an hour every hour on Monday morning." And if you're a promo man, you know what I'm talking about. You got an ad in your pocket. You're a pretty happy guy. And they played a 35-minute set, no encore. I mean, they played Luna, um, American Girl. And they ended the, I think they ended the show with Shout, which is one of their classic covers. They're, they're, they're such a great cover band, too. And uh, no, no encore. But I wanted to go meet this guy because I knew I had heard the record. Now I had, had seen these guys. And they were something like I had never seen before. And I went upstairs and I looked for Tom and he was wiping the sweat off his face. And I said, Hey, Tom, uh, Tom, my name is John Scott. I'm the new head of album promotion at ABC records. He said, I don't give a fuck who you are. <laughs> I hate ABC records. They've done nothing for us for eight months. They've advertised us in teen magazines, punk magazines. They don't know what they're doing over there. So just get the hell out of here. We hate ABC. And I, I just looked at him and knew that Charlie was going to start playing the record on Monday. Have you ever heard your record on the radio in Los Angeles? I asked him. He said, no, why? I said, well, you're going to start hearing it Monday morning. He went, get the hell out of here. ABC, here's another nut job saying they're going to do something for me, and they don't do it. And then the roadies came over and started to escort us out of the whiskey. So they, he threw you out of the whiskey the first night that you met him. Yeah, but before he did, <laughs> I turned around and said to him, how about this, Tom? I'm going to break your career wide open. And it was another bombardment of F-bombs. And I don't really know why I'm saying this, because I didn't know if I could. But as I got, as I got closer to the door of going outside, I turned around again, and again, I don't know why I'm saying this, but I said, Tom Petty, my name is John Scott. Every time you hear your record on the radio, you're going to think of me, and don't you ever forget it. And Charlie and I are, are ushered out the door at the whiskey. <laughs> and um, Charlie started playing it. Wednesday morning, Charlie Collins said, Tower Records just called, wants to know who we're playing. People are asking for it. And they ordered 250 copies of an eight-month-old record. And then I get a call from Tom's manager, Tony Dimitriotis, who's an Englishman and a great guy, as it turns out. Usually he says no to anything, but um, he said, you know, you, you, you've just pissed off my artist. You, you said you were going to break his career wide open. You know you can't do that. I said, look, I love this record, Tony. I'm going to do the best I can to get Tom Petty on the map. And he said, I want to meet you. We, we, we met. And Friday morning, my assistant says, Tom Petty's on the phone. And I'm kind of going to myself, oh, my God, I don't, I don't know which way this is going to go. And I picked up the phone, and Tom and his southern drawl said, uh, John, uh, this is Tom Petty. Um, my friends are telling me 
they're hearing the record on the radio, like you said, are you serious about what you told me? I said, Tom, I'm serious as I can be. I'm going to break your career. And because some stations had started adding it after Charlie and I saw them at the whiskey. And um, I, he said, I want to meet you. I said, when? He said, tonight. I went, I couldn't write the address down quick enough. I wrote his address down to his house, flew over there uh, to a place in Reseda. Uh, he was living in Reseda. <laughs> freeway running in the yard. Um, anyway, I walked in the door, saw a Confederate flag, and I knew I was in the right place. <laughs> when we went outside, we smoked a peace pipe, and um, he asked me about my career. And I, I didn't tell him about the Johnny Cougar part because I didn't want him to think I was nuts. And because Johnny Cougar was a nobody still at that time. And I asked him, have you been in any other bands that I might know of? He said, no, yeah, you never heard of them. They're called Mud Crutch. And I went, you mean the song Depot Street? And he went, how the hell do you know Depot Street? I told him the story. And we, we basically kind of sat and stared at each other for like 30 seconds. Like, wait a minute. You know Depot Street. He said, they only got three stations in America played Depot Street. And I said, I got one of them on the radio. And he said, well, you must be the biggest Mud Crutch fan there is. And we, we couldn't believe that I knew the song, obscure song from 1974, Depot Street. Yeah, that is amazing, right? How random is that? So what happened, ABC Records gets sold to MCA Records, where you had been fired. So <laughs> what happens now when you find this out, you're now at... MC, you're back at MCA Records, although the division, Shelter, ABC, whatever you want to call it, you're now working for the people who had fired you, and you're now doing the exact same thing. You're trying to push a band that's you know months old and nobody cares about. So pick it up from there, will you? Well, yeah, you're right. Nobody did care about them until, um, until Charlie Minor walked into my office and said, we've, we freaking made the charts, Billboard 177. Because we were working this record hard. And then I find out that M- MCA is about to buy ABC Records. I'm kind of going, I don't want to go back to a- MCA. I'll just be fired again. And Tom said, well, I was on there with Mud Crutch. I don't want to go back there. He said, John, do what you got to do. And I tell him, you know, we'll always be in touch. And and we were. And so I, I, I left ABC Records to go to Capricorn Records. So, so at this point, you're gone, and Tom's in flux, right? He, he, there's nothing. His career, I mean, he pretty much said, "I'm not, I'm not doing anything. I'm not." Right. They wanted so, to. So hire- he wouldn't. He wouldn't sign with MCA. Right. And and he decided. So then he decided he was going to pay for his next record himself, basically, right? Uh, and so yeah, Tom. Um, you know, felt like he was being treated like a piece of meat, found out he had a bad contract. And so, so he decides he's going to declare bank of bankruptcy, basically, that's, right? That's exactly so he could right. void his contract, and then he, he, so he felt he had no choice. And then he would go up in front of a judge at a court, and they would reassess everything. I'm with Capricorn, still in Los Angeles, um, with a new, I think I was, and a VP. And, uh, <laughs> and, Capricorn Records went bankrupt. They filed for bankruptcy. And I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, I'm out of a job again. And 
maybe a month later. And then I get a call from Tom's manager, Tony, going, you want a new job at Backstreet? I said, of course. Where are they? He said, um, they're distributed by MCA. I went, oh, my God. Here we're back at MCA again. And he said, you have the authority to call the shots. You tell them what to do now. And it was only a three or four person office. And we weren't on in the big tower uh, at MCA. We were on a little uh, backlot studio, which is real cool because you would walk outside and see, you know, TV stars, movie stars, the Jaws ride, everything. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and so uh, I, I went to work at, uh, at Backstreet Records and um, started hearing bits and pieces of uh, Damn the Torpedoes, the third album from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. So I come in and I've got run of the house. I, I said um, to, to the people over there who fired me, I want blue vinyl or red vinyl, uh, listen to her heart, red vinyl. Uh, I want this, I want that. And they had to say yes. And so I'm kind of riding a real high here. You know, uh, They let me do what I wanted to do. What did I just, you do to break that record? Was that when you made the, the live thing or was the live thing was before, right? The live thing was before. That so, The live great. thing was in uh, before the second album came out. We arranged a live broadcast with KWST, Charlie Kendall Station. And we invited 75 listeners into Capitol Studios. And I told Tom I needed the biggest, baddest, kick-ass version of Breakdown you've ever heard in your life. And he gave it to us. And we put that out on a seven-and-a-half-inch reel-to-reel quarter-inch tape and sent it to every FM station in America. And for me, that's what really broke Tom Petty, that long version of Breakdown. Talk about the role of the fax machine. That's something I thought would ne- I-, I had no idea this was going to happen, but I bought a fax machine because, you know, people, people in business needed them, and I was using a person's fax machine across the, the way of my office. So I bought one, and uh, I told Tom about it. I said, man, I got this crazy new thing. It's a fax machine. You can, like, send things over the telephone to other people. And so I took him a copy of one, and he said, I got to get a fax machine. So he got a fax machine, and the only person I knew that had a fax machine was Tom. And I was the one he only knew who had a fax machine, so we started faxing each other. It got to a part where the true colors of Tom Petty came out of what a funny guy he was. It's hard to describe the fax. It started off pretty innocent. The first fax said from Tom said, hey, John, are you home? I want to demonstrate this fax machine to Roger McGuinn, who's at my house. So I wrote something back and faxed it over. And then next minute I get a fax back going, hey, John, thanks for this fax demonstration, Roger McGuinn. And so after that happened, we just kept faxing each other really silly stuff. He was a Dodgers fan. He would write something. He always doodled on every fax. And I, can, and I saved these faxes. I still have the thermal paper, paper copies of them. But a lot of the faxes are in the book, and there's some that, that I didn't put in there. So many people say that's, a, that's a, one of their favorite parts of the whole book is just seeing Tom, stand, thinking of Tom standing at a fax machine writing something and sending it to somebody because that just didn't sound like Tom Petty. But that was Tom Petty. And we, 
I had this idea of, I mean, we played around. All we were doing was just playing around, really. And uh, I thought the Wilburys, the traveling Wilburys, had uh, just started. And I thought, maybe we could use this idea to fax radio stations. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, I'm just going to give you a list of radio stations, and you just write something like, Tom Petty, uh, the Traveling Wilbury salutes WBCN. And he ran the idea by Tony, his manager. <clears throat> he said, sure. Tom was, I gave him 100 stations to fax. He was like, 100? So he just started faxing stations. Tom Petty and uh, Traveling Wilburys are coming. We salute WBC in Boston. Charlie T. Wilbury. And his fax number was on, his personal fax number was on the page on, at the top with Gone Gator Music as his publishing company. And the station started faxing him back, going, I would get a call first going, hey, I just got a fax. Is that really Tom Petty? And I would say, yes, Tom Petty is faxing back. He's waiting. So he started getting faxes back from radio stations, not believing that this was even possible. <clears throat> so we kind of called it the Traveling Wilbury Fax Promotion. I know a lot of people still have those faxes. And uh, they're, like I said, they're, they're really a big part of my book because it shows a different side of Tom completely. Uh, his silliness, his funniness, his doodling, his... He would. He also wanted to find out information about the traveling Wilburys. Where were they on the charts? Do you think uh, last night should be the next single? And it, and it worked. It, it really worked. We faxed every station in America that we could find. And uh, I think Anita, we faxed um, WYSP, and I think Howard Stern was there. Maybe at that time. I don't yeah, know. after me, he was there. I yeah yeah. yeah. And they invited <laughs> Tom yeah. to come by the station anytime. And people would sign their names. Uh, you know, they would just pass the facts around. And people would sign their names to it and send it back to Tom. And he was amazed. He was, like, blown away. But that that was just one of the things that we did that were, were different. And I, I always like to do, try and think of things that were different. I had never known an artist who faxed a radio station. I don't know if there's ever been one since. <laughs> You know, Denny, it's mind-boggling what John had to do to get airplay for Tom. You know, the hoops he oh, had yeah. to jump through. Oh, yeah. And in retrospect, it seems unbelievable, but that's the way it was. And, you know, a lot of people may not remember, but Bob Dylan chose Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers to be the only band that he went on tour with, uh, except for the early days with the band. And they went on the True Confessions tour in 1986. And I was lucky enough to be there for one of the nights when they played at the Spectrum in Philadelphia. I'm sure some people are listening and they were there too. It was mm -hmm. for two nights, July 19th and 20th. And uh, it was kind of an odd night because Bob stipulated, and I don't know how I found this out, but he stipulated that there should be no spotlight on him. So the first half of the concert, they left the house lights up which was weird. Yeah. And then, but it was as if to say, well, this is us. We're really here. And then they shut down the lights and uh, no spotlight. So you knew they were on stage. You could kind of see them, but it, 
<laughs> it was a very weird, but typically Bob Dylan, you know, yeah. what do you expect? Yeah. Tom Petty songs to me are just, they're poetry. They're some of the greatest mm-hmm. songs I feel. That well, you're not alone. Read. A lot of people right. agree with I'm, Yeah, I'm sure. So I decided to pick 10 Tom Petty songs okay. that were my favorites. I could have done 15. I could have done 20. And I put them in alphabetical order because I can't pick one over the other. So here they are. A Face in the Crowd, American Girl, Crawling Back to You, Even the Losers, Here Comes My Girl, Insider. I feel like that's almost like a Warren Zevon song. Hmm. Into the Great Wide Open, Mary Jane's Last Dance, Shadow of a Doubt, and You Don't Know How It Feels. Okay. me. I I, I agree with uh, just about everything. I would have put on there. I know it's weird, and I really didn't like it. Well, Initially, I liked it, and then I didn't like it, and now I like it a lot. (laughs) Don't come around here no more, just because it was so different. That was the Dave, one. Dave Dave yeah, Stewart, your rhythmics. Yeah. That was so yeah, the, his yeah. influence. Yeah. And yeah. um I need to know because I play. Oh, I love album. hey, listen, I First love album. at least ten more songs. <laughs> you know, when I say these are my favorites, that doesn't mean I don't like the others, but yeah. I had to come up with a list and it was really hard. I mean, it was really hard. I mean, southern accents not on my yeah. list. What? But, you know, I had you to do stop it somewhere. So. Yeah. Okay. You have to anyway, stop let's let, let's get back. I, this has just been great to have John on. And uh, I, I hope people are, you know, like sitting by and like eavesdropping on our conversation because I felt that's what it was. You and me and we knew him. We were just having a conversation. So I hope it came off. Okay. So this is uh, the final part, part three of John Scott on Tom Petty and me. Tell us what's your relationship with Tom was over the years after he, he'd sort of broken after like the Wilburys, when he became a superstar, how did he treat you? He treated me just like he treated most everybody else. He helped people um, that helped him. He helped him in many, many ways um, by being a friend, by if you, if you needed something, he was there. Like I said, my house flooded in 1980. I'm living on army cots. And Tom heard about that, and he said, you're coming to live with me. And I was there with my family for a month while we dug out mud out of our house. And Tom was a gentle guy, a humble guy. He was beyond funny. I I said the other day that usually you would knock on his house and knock on the door, and he would open up the door, and you'd walk in, and in five minutes he would have you laughing. He'd look you in the face and go, I bet you I can make you laugh. At that point, he was starting to become an icon and being funny. I don't know if that goes with being an icon, but right, um, like nobody says, "Oh, Mick Jagger is so funny." <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's one of the things I wanted to do. I wanted to show people in my book how funny Tom was, and uh, by having those faxes, um, I've got people now asking me if they will send me a copy of a fax. So I'm working a little uh, concept about my faxes, but. Um, yeah, the fact is just put it over the top for Tom. I mean, in our relationship, uh, I, I pretty much, I would throw an idea out to him and majority of times he would say yes. Like when Southern Accents came out, I asked him if he would have a listening party before a radio and records convention before the album came out at his house. And he agreed. And Tom was there standing at the front door and he handed, everybody walked in. Um, a glass of champagne and kind of behind him, I would say that's Charlie Kendall or that's, you know, 
Denny Somak, or that's Anita Gevinson. And, um, he was just that kind of a guy. He, he, he really, once you trust, once he trusted you, he would go along with just about anything, unless it was absolutely awful. But I can't remember anything that he never said no to me about. All right. Uh, John, you're, uh, on the inside. So we'd like to get some inside stories that people aren't going to hear anywhere else about Tom Petty. I just want to ask you, what's this? story about Tom Petty and coffee? <laughs> well, you know, I, I heard about this story. I, I didn't really know about it. I, I read it, and then I heard somebody say, well, it wasn't true. Or I think one of, his, one of his daughters may have said, well, that's not true. But the story is that he went to a place in Malibu, a restaurant, and loved the coffee and said, what is this? And, he, and they told him Maxwell House. And they showed him exactly how to make it. He went out and bought one of those big coffee machines, and he started drinking Maxwell coffee. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. <laughs> that's something that Tom Petty would do. Just something off the wall. Um, I never knew what kind of coffee he drank. But I do know that um, there was always that coffee pot, a bun coffee maker or something out. When we'd go to his house, and Ed, we he would throw a Christmas party, for 40 or so of his friends, the family, tour, road managers, etc. Easter party, I mean, a Thanksgiving party, Easter party, Christmas party. And that was the most fun I've ever had in my life, at a party at Tom's house. You went to see Tom on the 40th anniversary tour, which turned out to be the last tour. And in fact, uh, the last date, I believe, was the Hollywood Bowl. And it was only a few days uh, before he passed. You were at that show. Well, it was 9-25-2017. I'll never forget that date. And um, I'd seen him in Memphis in two th- uh, May 8th that year. And I asked him how he was doing. And we went backstage and asked him how he was doing. He said, well, I got a few aches and pains. And I'm having trouble hearing out of my left ear. And he had some device in his left ear. He said, but it's nothing to stop the show. And I walked outside to the seats. And I kind of saw Steve Ferroni pushing him up a little bit from behind. I thought, well, that's kind of weird. But I didn't think really anything about it. But the, the night of the 25th was great. Uh, my daughter and I went to the Hollywood Bowl uh, early because <clears throat> Sirius XM asked me to do an interview that night telling my story that's basically in my book and basically as I'm trying to tell you guys. And um, I, did, I, I told my story about 6.30, I think it was, and I went to my seats because I, didn't, I really didn't want to go backstage. I, I could have, but I knew it was going to be, you know, Friends, artists, last tour, possibly the last tour <clears throat> was rumored to be, or he may do a Wildflowers small show the next year. Nobody knew if it was going to be the last concert or not. And there were three of them at the Hollywood Bowl, and the only one I wanted to go was the last one. And so I went to my seat, having dinner there with my daughter, and the place was, uh, Lucinda Williams opened, and the place was just crazy, 18,000 people. And the lights went out, and of course the the roars of the crowd. And he played four songs without ever saying anything to the audience, except "Thank you, thank you very much." And on the fourth, fifth song, he came out and said, "Oh, this we've got so many friends here. We just we're just lucky to get to the stage tonight." But there's one friend in particular I want to thank. His name is John Scott. You may not know him. But back in 1977, six weeks before our record was about to be dropped by ABC Records, 
he went to the radio stations with a vengeance and he got that sucker on the charts. And then went and he said, we want to dedicate this song to him. I won't back down. And I literally didn't, I didn't know he was going to do that. And I, I started crying. It was one of those moments in your life where you just, you, you're overwhelmed. And my daughter was crying and she'd grown up with the petties. And I, I later found out one of the reasons he did that. At the memorial, his wife, Dana, came up to me and said, John, I want to tell you something. We got into the limo around 6.15 to head to the Hollywood Bowl. And, of course, Sirius XM Radio is on. And um, he just said, hey, did they say John Scott was going to be interviewed? And she said, yeah. He said, well, I want to hear this. And I told the story like I'm telling you, pretty much basically the same story. And he looked at his wife and he just said, you know, everything he just said was the absolute truth about how this whole thing happened. She said, that's one of the reasons he dedicated that song to you. I was just overcome. Uh, and then a week later, we hear the news and he, he's gone. And I just remember, I remember going to my Facebook page and just, I just went, no, 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 about a hundred times. No, 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 no. I think Rolling Stone put out a thing saying he had died on, on one night and then, it, then reports came out. No, he's still not dead. But the next morning I woke up and he had died. And one of the toughest days of my life, it's still hard for me to believe, I think along with every one of his fans, that he's not with us anymore. Are you aware of what's in the archives that we may be seeing out over the next few years? I think, I think they pretty, pretty much put out most everything on uh, American Treasure. And the Wildflowers was going to be a two-album record, but the record company, I think, only wanted one album. And so the, the remaining songs that um, weren't on that Wildflowers album have come out now in a, in a, I think it's called the American Treasure LP set. And I don't really know of any other songs. There, there probably are. He used to do cover versions of songs. And he was one of the best. To me, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers were one of the best cover bands in America. They could do any song. Agreed. Talk about some of the covers that Tom used to do, because they were songs that he grew up on or meant something exactly. to him, right? Tom was a British music fan, like so many people at the time, especially in the South. For some reason, we were just mesmerized by British music. He he loved the zombies. He loved the kinks. He Animals. The animals. He the when animals. he would do Don't Bring Me Down, oh my oh. God. I mean... He would nail it. He nailed every song. I tell you, you want to be a rock and roll star. I mean, he... A lot of birds tunes, right? A lot of birds. He was jingly jangly. And, and, you know, I remember Roger McGuinn saying in an interview, when I first heard American Girl, I thought to myself, did I write that? Tom just had a love, you know, a love of the birds. And he had a love of the jingly jangly Mike Campbell guitar sound. So a lot of the music, he, he, he made it his own. That was one of the great things about Tom. He would, and he, and he covered every type of artist. Solomon Burke, "Cry to Me." A lot of art. He had a jukebox in his house. He did "Friend of the Devil." I mean, come on, you know. No. I, I, I asked uh, one of uh, his people after he passed away, "Why don't you put an album out called one of the covers by Tom Petty?" And he was such a great guy. That's all I can say. Just a great human being. Uh, I mean, you know, he would stand up for 
stand up for what he believed in. And he did that so many times. Then you know that, Nita, you know that. About you know, MCA wanted to raise the price of the album to nine ninety eight. He was going to be the guinea pig, and he said no. They tried to use him to raise the the price of records, if I'm not mistaken, to nine ninety eight as a list price. And didn't he threaten to name his record eight ninety eight? Yes, he did. Did you tell me? Were you there at the time? Um, was I there at the time? No, I wasn't there at the time. Um, do you remember the, the still? Story, oh, right? very, very well. We, we, you know, I would go to his house all the time, even though I was working for Capricorn. We didn't look too far from each other. And we'd go over and just hang out and listen to music. And um, MCA decided they wanted to try and raise the price of albums from eight nine uh, from 898 to 998. And he was going to be the first artist to do that. He was going to be the guinea pig, and Tom didn't like that. And so he said, "I'm not going to. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to put an album out. And if I do, it's going to be called 898." And he held out, and MCA gave up, and they didn't use him as the guinea pig. Just Tom. Tom was a. He was. He was. He loved his fans, and he just didn't want to um, think that he was the guy. You know, that wanted the extra dollar. I want to just ask you, because uh, I know he was uh, very generous to a lot of people. Uh, he tried to help out uh, Del Shannon. He tried to help out uh, Phil Seymour. Who were some of the other people that he tried to? Phil Seymour was in the Dwight Twilley band, which I believe were label mates of his at Shelter, but he was very friendly with them. Who were right. some of the people that he that he tried to, to, to work with? I, I know he helped Roy Orbison, obviously, with the, the Traveling Wilburys. But what was his uh, nature like to do that? Well, um, a lot of times when I was uh, had my own record promotion company, I would find a, I found the I've heard the Black Crows, Pretty Little Thing, Let Me Light Your Candle, Mom, I'm Too Hard to Handle that song, and I took it to his house and he said, "I want uh, the Georgia Satellites." I'm sorry, the Georgia Satellites, and he said, "I want them to be in my next tour." He would call Tony and say, "I want the Georgia Satellites off the." Um, listening to this one song to be on the next tour. Keep your hands to yourself. Keep your hands to yourself. That's it. And I took Tommy Two-Tone's record, 8675309, to his house. He got on the phone and said, I want Tommy Two-Tone to be the opening act on my next tour. And he helped a lot of artists like that, not because of me playing him a song. If somebody happened to play him a song, he liked it from a new artist. He wanted them on the show. Tommy, all of a sudden, Tommy Two Tones uh, on, on <laughs> has a hit record, and um, one and Tom Petty's asking him to be on the next tour. But he helped. He, he wanted a lot of opening bands that were were good but unknown, and that's how he he tried to help other bands. I think that um, that was one of his great things about him. He would he would. He loved the opening bands. If you like Lucinda Williams, he's, she's going to be on the next tour. I, I just wondered if um, you could talk a little bit about um, how he felt about Stevie Nicks. How he thought about her? Well, I know that... Um, Tom was introduced by Stevie Nicks, uh, by Jimmy Ivey, who happened to be producing both artists. So uh, w- were you aware, when did you first hear the, the duet? At his house. He used to invite me over to his house before any album came out, just to get a, get a reaction. 
And um, he had told me the story about uh, Jimmy and Stevie were boyfriend and girlfriend, I believe. And uh, he, uh, Jimmy wanted a song for Stevie if he wanted, if he would write one. And I can't remember which, 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 which song it is. You'd probably know it better. One of them, he said no to her and took it back. Right. And what was the song? Uh, Stop Dragging My Heart Around. And then there's one more. Yeah, yeah there was. Oh, there was another one? Yeah, I'm the insider. I'm the insider, right. I think he took the insider back and gave her Stop Dragging My Heart Around. And the ironic thing about that is that record went, by Stevie Nicks went to number one. And Tom's record, whatever it was at the time, Don't Do Me Like That or Refugee, was number two. And he never made number one because of the song he gave to Stevie Nicks. Didn't he put it on his album too? He did. Yes, he did. And um, and he made it his own. And it was two great songs. And I think he was reluctant to give any more to, <laughs> to her because of it pushing him out of being number one. As a matter of fact, the uh, Damn the Torpedoes album made it to number two. Never made it to number one because of The Wall by Pink Floyd. And didn't bother Tom. Number two is pretty good. I mean, you know, coming from never being charted before in his life all the way to being number two. And um, he was happy with that. I got two final questions I want to add. When Tom got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, what did you find out from him about what that meant to him? Oh, it meant the world to him. I mean, here's a kid from Gainesville, Florida, not knowing he's going to make it, but he's going to drive to Los Angeles and, and try to play songs for any label that would listen to him and being signed by Shelter Records by Denny Cordell. And then not knowing, well, he was out there with Mudcrutch. Mudcrutch broke up because he was on MCA Records. And Mudcrutch broke up and they formed the Heartbreakers. And it's hard to believe that that first album, which is so good, was a, was a first album for a band, if you think about it. American Girl and Breakdown were written on the same day, 19, July 4th, 1976. That honor meant the world to him because he was finally validated as being one of the greatest iconic musicians in the world. That was a special honor. I know he'll, he, he'll never forget that. Along with being the 2017 Person of the Year at the Music Heroes Award, which is a charity for the, for the Grammys. Yeah, he was proud of that night. I mean, I, I, I wasn't there, but... Um, I, I knew from talking to him what an honor it was to have been a kid in Gainesville listening to British songs. Yeah, that was a special, special night for him. All right. I want to ask you also, uh, obviously, it's only been a few years since uh, Tom passed, and he had announced that he was doing a final tour. We don't know what his plans were going forward as far as recording, but where do you think uh, Tom Petty stands in the, the history of rock and roll? And what do you think he would have achieved uh, had that been his last tour? Would he have still done like one-off dates? Would he have gone into producing? What would he have done? He loved producing. Um, the word was um, after that last tour that he possibly was going to do a Wildflowers tour, playing every Wildflowers song in small venues. That was the rumor that was out there. And I think that's what he would have done after coming home after a 52-city um, tour. I think he would have rested, gone out the next year and done a Wildflowers tour because he that was one of his favorite albums in the world. 
I think he would have continued. I mean, he at that time he was writing songs that sounded like nobody else and meant so much to people that going to a concert with see Tom Petty was like a two and a half hour of forget every trouble you had in the world and sing along to every song. And you, and you guys know you've seen him. He, he would sing breakdown and the audience would be singing the song for him. You would just know that you were in bliss for two and a half hours and you knew every song he was playing. And that was one thing I loved about him. He, he, had the ability to write a short song that meant so much to so many people. And to me, uh, he's probably the most iconic rock musician I've ever known. Uh, his fans are still, still so heavily involved in uh, uh, Facebook pages. Tom Petty Nation has 38,000 people uh, signed up to that, that page. And, uh, they they just loved him like we did. I mean, we loved that guy for many things that he did, the songs, uh, the parties, the things he did to help people. What happened was on the last tour, Denny, um, they started these meetups, they called them. And <laughs> socially, if he was playing in St. Louis, somebody would pick a place out, fans would meet up before the show, People got to know each other. They became friends. And they would pass the word along about the St. Louis concert on social media. Next city, they also had a meetup, some restaurant. And everybody started becoming friends in this Tom Petty world. And that Facebook page has brought so many people together that are not only Facebook friends, but they've seen each other. They go to concerts together. They know each other. And it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating group, Tom Petty Nation. <clears throat> if you're not a member of Tom Petty Nation on Facebook, <clears throat> go there. Uh, it's, it's a great place to be because it's all about Tom Petty. People loved him. They just loved him so much. Okay. And he felt the same way back. I know he did. I mean, he never wanted to, he always told me, I never, I, I always want to be I always want my next concert to be better than the last. And I also want my next album to be better than the last. And that was him. That was him. He never, he, I mean, I've seen him do tours where his voice was a little shaky, but he just didn't want to disappoint the fans. Unless he was completely uh, hoarse like he was in Boston, he would play and pull it off. But when he got really sick, I mean, uh, as far as, Void throat issues. Um, he just didn't want to let his fans down. That's really the bottom line. He loved his fans, and he knew he knew they loved the Heartbreakers as well. I mean, think about it. Probably one of the best guitar players in the world, most underrated guitar players, Mike Campbell. Uh, ben Montench, one of the most underrated piano players, session players. Stan Lynch the same way, producer Don Henley. Um, it wasn't, and I asked Ben recently, I said, would you, would you ever consider going back uh, on tour like with uh, Foo Fighters, Dave Grohl? Would you ever go out for like for five days, Dave Grohl and the Heartbreakers? Or next week it would be Chris Stapleton and the Heartbreakers. And Ben said, you know, John, I could never do that. Tom was the leader. 
um, I could never play another concert as the Heartbreakers with anybody. It just, it just wouldn't feel right. And, um, okay. and I know that's, that's what's, that'll never happen again. I think that Tom will be, I think there'll never be another Tom Petty, in my opinion, in our lifetime. I agree. I agree. It was so prolific. Yeah. I want to thank you for coming by and remind everybody that your book, Tom Petty and Me, My Rock and Roll Adventures with Tom Petty, is out, and you are promoting it, and you are on Facebook. It's uh, J-O-N-S-C-O-T-T, John Scott. Uh, and people can reach you through your Facebook page if they want to comment. Or do you have a do you have a web page too? You want to I do. It's it's TomPettyandMe.com. And when people buy from there, I sign I sign every book. I personalize every book if people ask me to do it. It's on Amazon. I do the same thing. I sign every book. Um, it's on Amazon Kindle. John, tell me, you have uh, an audio version of the book out now correct i do i have an audio version of the book and um um it has a has me telling the story and we also did um we we did christmas ids with tom i asked him if he would do christmas ids for radio stations and um he said sure and the first year we did it he came and said, uh, I, I had the 100 stations again. Hi, this is Tom Petty. Uh, we salute WBCN. Merry Christmas. Happy Holidays. Tom Petty. And he he started doing them. He said, hey, these are pretty boring. You, you think I can bring my guitar out? And he brought his guitar out. And I'll never forget, He, I, I never knew him to drink much. And he asked the engineer to get him a bottle of uh, Jack Daniels. And we went outside and got to the point. And he came back and started making funny Christmas IDs for friends, for people who helped him on the way up, for DJs. Um, for then, he, then at the end, he would do his tour manager, his his, his crew. He would do Christmas IDs that would last about a minute or so. And so I put um, I put the one he did for me in the Audible book as well as the dedication that he did to me at the Hollywood Bowl. But uh, the Christmas IDs, um, they're up actually on a YouTube page I have, Tom Petty and me. The Christmas IDs he did for people are absolutely hilarious. He did every one of them differently. They were all funny as hell. And we did those for two years. And the majority of the people I know have a copy. Once again, (laughs) It's called Tom Petty and Me, My Rock and Roll Adventures with Tom Petty uh, by John Scott, who's been our guest today, and I really appreciate you coming. Well, it was a loss of an American treasure, oh, no for question. Sure. No yeah, question. I mean, Tom, it's so sad. It's hard to believe. It really is still hard to believe that he's gone. Yeah. 
Uh, Tom Betty and the Heartbreakers, one of the most iconic rock and roll bands in the world. I don't mind saying that. Uh, you know, sometimes people say that all, it's used too much, but in this case, no. Our thanks to John Scott for his stories. You can check out his book, Tom Petty and Me, My Rock and Roll Adventures with Tom Petty. And, and where can John's- they check us out, Denny? You, well, I was going to give that in a minute. I want to make sure people know that John is actually the type of guy that will probably answer every letter. So you can you can email. Oh, he him absolutely as well. does. In fact, he's he publishes his own book. He he and he'll sign every one of them he too. Mails the books. He gets on his bicycle and comes to yeah. your house and delivers the books. He's <laughs> he's he's his own Amazon. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> he is. He really is. So uh, anyway, that's going to do it for us. I want to remind everybody to check out our website as well, therockpodcast.com. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at The Rock Podcast. And don't forget, you can uh, contact us uh, by email. Hello at The Rock Podcast. We read everything and we respond. And you can go to the website if you want to see pictures uh, of Anita and Danny and some of the other people that were on uh, the episode with Bruce. That was a great episode. We got a lot of response Thank on that Thank you. One. Yes, it was. We love, I love doing that one. Yeah, yeah, love, so. yeah. All right. Let's give the last word to Tom Petty. <laughs> Get up. Now, come on and dog it. Yeah, I got a dog. Lives up in a tree. Craziest dog that you ever see, and he's long and lean. He's got spots on his knee, and I don't know what. So I call John Scott. Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas, John Scott.